I heard that there was a family that lived there. The husband was maybe a dentist? One day, Mr. Perelson flipped out and murdered his wife and went after the kid, and, and the kid ran screaming to one of the neighbors. She escaped, what, but injured, and then ran running into the streets, screaming and bloody, and um, by the time they came to rescue her, and I think her other siblings, I believe there were two younger, um, by the time they got there, their dad. And he ended up downing, uh, I think it was cyanide or something, and uh, and doing himself in. And uh, as the legend states... Well, this is where the story gets really interesting. This isn't just a murder story from 1959 that is a little bit unexplained. What happened after the death is what makes the house on Glendower Place a mystery. This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. This week, it's a story a lot of people in Los Angeles know a little about. The Los Feliz Murder House. I spoke to a lot of people in the area and they kind of thought they knew something about it. No one could really say where the house was. A lot of people confused it with the house that's above it on the hill, which is a, a, the real haunted house in, in the area because it was in a 1958 haunted house movie. I'm Vincent Price. And you're invited to my party in the house on Haunted Hill. That's Jeff Mace you heard a minute ago. The movie he's talking about, obviously, is House on Haunted Hill, which actually came out in 1959, and featured the exterior of Frank Lloyd Wright's Ennis House. There's also the Soden House. That one was designed by Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright's son, and was owned for a time by a doctor whose own son, an LAPD homicide cop, accused him of being the killer in the Black Dahlia murder of the 1940s. Some people use the term Los Feliz murder house to refer to the La Bianca house from the Manson murders. The point is, that's Los Feliz. It's a neighborhood where you can ask people about the famous murder house, and they can legitimately respond by asking you which one you mean. Anyway, back to Jeff Mache. I'm a journalist. I specialize in crime, mysteries, and urban legends. Jeff is the author of the definitive story on the Los Feliz murder house, which is to say, this Los Feliz murder house, the Perelson house. It was on the night of December 6th, 1959, the scene of a terrible crime. Sometime during that night, after the sun had gone down, Harold Perelson picked up his ball-peen hammer, and we know that he brought it down on his wife's head so hard that it cracked a hole in the back of her skull. And that hole was uh, big enough to let enough blood out that it stained the entire pillow and most of the, most of the bed the color of claret. The blood from that injury splashed back onto the doctor's shoulder, covered his hands. She died instantly. Um, the doctor, not happy with what he'd done, walked through his, uh, his ensuite bathroom into the bedroom of his eldest daughter, Judy. And there he did the same thing. He smashed the hammer down onto his daughter's head, but she didn't die instantly. He just caught her with a glancing blow. And she screamed the house down. In fact, she screamed the neighborhood down. Um, Neighbours reported hearing a, a scream that sounded like it was coming from a wild animal. And she screamed, you know, don't kill me. 
the daughter Judy went to a neighbor's house and managed to to raise uh, a neighbor who who rushed to the to the house and he found Dr. Perelson wandering around the upstairs still holding his hammer covered in blood. I mean it, it was quite a, a grim evening up there in Los Feliz. A production note by the way. Los Feliz is technically the correct way to say it, but in general usage around LA the neighborhood is known as Los Feliz. So that's the version I've gone with here. However you pronounce it, the events of December 6, 1959 were a ghastly thing. Dr. Kill's wife and self in frenzy of nightmare. The LA Times bannered its account the next day, referring to what I think is the creepiest detail in the whole story. When his two younger children woke up, they were 11 and 13, Perelson told them, go back to bed. This is a nightmare. So the crime is really quite awful enough on its own. But what accounts for the rest of the Perelson House's notoriety is what's become of it in the almost 60 years since, which is nothing. It's been, for all practical purposes, untouched since that night. The furnishings still in place. A Christmas tree and presents, famously, undisturbed for decades in the living room, gradually accreting layers of dust. The house was sold in a probate sale in 1960 to a couple from Lincoln Heights, Emily and Julian Enriquez. In 1994, it passed to their son, Rudy, who died just this past year. The parents never moved in, neither did the son. He told a reporter from the Times who happened to catch him visiting the house one day that he used it for storage. So there it sat, frozen in time, empty and unchanging, except for the inexorable process of decay. Here's Jeff Mache again reading from his story, The Murder House, at Medium.com. The house just paused, and life spooled past it like microfilm in Fast Forward. Night and day flickered past in stroboscopic flashes. History played out in time-lapse beneath the house, the city's vast, twinkling valley a gilded stage. Its characters named themselves Monroe, Mansfield and Phoenix, On the horizon, buildings rose downtown, and behind them, riot flares blossomed, and lives were untimely interrupted. Biggie, Michael, Rodney. Even when the ground shook, it troubled not the house or its foundations. In this city of front-page secret lives, now a TMZ circus, the house locked its violent mystery behind its crumbling facade, ageing ungracefully above the land of the facelift and injection filler. So the story of the murder is, by itself, horrific enough. The story of the house is, by itself, strange enough. Together, they make for a narrative that's magnetically compelling. Uh, it, it, it's it's, a, it's a, a home run for people that are into spooky stuff. This is Scott Michaels. I live in Hollywood, California, and I own Dearly Departed Tours. Uh, which is a a lighthearted look at the dark side of Hollywood. The Perelson House was, until recently, a regular stop on Scott's tragical history tour, which, according to his website, the New York Daily News once called a trip down bad memory lane. There was a sort of a dramatic, there was a a group called Dead Can Dance, and they, uh, they, uh, they, uh, 
did a song called How Fortunate the Man is Not Fortunate the Man with None is and it's really kind of an imposing sort of the shining kind of music that I used to play on the way up there. You know, as I say we're our tour is pretty lighthearted but goes into dark places. You saw sagacious Solomon. So it just sort of changed the mood to it when you're traveling up that road and going around that corner and then, you know, ta-da, there's the house. He had to take it off the tour about a year ago for the most prosaic of reasons. The neighbors made a stink. The neighbors don't like rubberneckers. They don't like ghost hunters or adventurers or bloggers or videographers or photographers. They've done everything they can to uh, make people feel as unwelcome as possible. They've um, erected a a chain link fence across the driveway to stop people driving up the drive. Um, They've generally made it be known uh, that they don't like it if you uh, reverse in their private driveways, which is the only way really to get back down again. They're they're an angry bunch of people up there, and I understandably so. Uh, I'd be probably upset if my house became a tourist destination. The internet has has ruined a lot of places that were really kind of cool. Uh, so I, I can sympathize with their with their plight, um, you know. But they're they're quite agitated. They're quite angry people up there, and uh, you know they they if you so much as uh, 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 drive with one tire on their driveway, they'll come out and start literally start pounding on your windows uh, for trespassing. So I just it's just not worth it to me. I'll take people up there in my own car, but uh, but no, I'm not gonna not gonna and have to have people endure that on my tour. You can, as Scott does, see the neighbor's point of view on this. You live on a quiet, narrow street backing up onto Griffith Park, and here comes an endless parade of murder groupies. Look, it's so cool, dude. Like, you could, you could still see the tree. And, and Yolanda Lawrence, a TV writer from Studio City, made the drive up the hill about five years ago. I went up with some friends. We were sort of like boozy. <laughs> we had a couple of drinks. Um, and like I said, I wasn't courageous enough to go up, but my friends did. I watched them for a bit and then, to be honest with you, it felt intrusive. And so I turned away a little bit. I felt like they were messing with something sacred in a way because someone an innocent person died there, and a crazy person died as well. But it just it felt weird, if I'm being honest. That's why I didn't have the courage to go up there. It just it didn't feel right. Is it too much? Is it too romantic, if that's even the right word, to theorize that some essence of evil lingers in a place where something horrible once happened? Yolanda doesn't think so. I'm a Buddhist, so I don't, I don't believe in that crap. You know, you die and that's it, is, is what I believe. Um, and I'm just like, well, maybe what you're feeling is energy, because I do feel like, like we leave energy behind us when we pass. And I was like, maybe there's an unsettled energy surrounding the house because of what happened in the home, but haunted, that's a little extreme from, from my taste and from my belief system. Scott Michaels, same thing. You know, the echoes of what happened up there are still up there. So certainly, if you subscribe to that 
that belief, you know, there was energy up there. Horrible thing happened up there. And those walls were witness to it. Do I believe it? Do I believe that some malign psychic residue clings to the Perelson house? Well, let me put it this way. No, I don't. Romantic filigrees like lingering spiritual essences. My belief is, that's story time. That's the movies. You know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Say like, if someone burns toast. Well, maybe things that happen leave other kind of traces behind. Not things that anyone can notice, but things that people who shine can see. When we embellish stories like the one about the odd, long, living death of the Perelson house, we willfully obscure the reality. Here's an example. In the lounge, you can clearly see, if you look through the windows, there is a Christmas tree and some unwrapped Christmas presents, and all the ephemera of a home from 1959. As legend has it, those items belonged to the Perelson family. However, people have investigated and discovered that some of those items were not uh, around before 1959, um, there was some magazines that people have identified as being from 1960, 1961 and 1962. So then this other theory comes into play. Was there another family that rented that property? And this is a rumour that you can read about online, that immediately after the Perelson incident, another family moved in and rented that property. And they weren't told about the murder. And exactly a year on, after the, the murder-suicide, something happened in that house that made that new family run. And not even take their Christmas tree and their Christmas presents with them. That's the theory that people really talk about online. That's the theory. That's the legend. Is there any real reason to believe the family, if indeed they ever existed, fled the house exactly a year after the murders? Nah. Is it possible somebody borrowed the place from the Enriquez family, or, for that matter, squatted there for a time? Sure. Rudy Enriquez himself said he used the place for storage. But that doesn't make for as good a story. A guy like Rudy, the retired manager of a music supply store, failing to capitalize on an asset that may have been at his death worth several million dollars, well, that's weird in a city obsessed with property values. But is it otherworldly? Is it proof that the place is haunted? Not really. So maybe the house's enduring notoriety is simpler and more explicable than what gets passed from person to person and sends them winding up the hill to take a look. Los Angeles is a city that disregards its history. A time capsule right in its midst? Well, now you have my attention. Add the fact that it's a crime scene, and now, as stories go, it's unstoppable. None of which is to say there isn't a mystery there. I mean a genuine mystery. A bone-deep human puzzle. And to me, it's a lot more intriguing than why the house sat empty for so many years. What made Harold Perelson snap? How could he do it? How could anybody do it? 
the things you grasp for to explain it. He'd had some business reverses, lost a patent fight in court, struggled with depression. He was overextended. The house with its four master suites and a ballroom was too big, too costly, too much. None of that really touches the enormity of what he did, the horror of it. He had simply come to the end of himself. The police found a copy of Dante's The Divine Comedy on his nightstand, open to Canto One. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. It's evil given a human face in Dr. Perelson, and it's evil given a uh, suburban setting in the house. And I think, and I, you know, I didn't invent that in writing the, the article. Everything right now from Gone Girl to The Girl on the Train, all these novels, the fear is, is that the monster is already in the house. It's in the domestic setting. It's a familiar trope from urban legends and horror movies, like this one. When a stranger calls. Leave me alone! Jill, this is Sergeant Sacker. Listen to me. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Our squad car's on the way over there right now. Just get out of that house. In our homes, in our beds, in the night. That's when we feel safest. Which is odd, if you think about it, because that's when we're the most vulnerable. The most terrifying thing is, is that Lillian didn't see it coming. She never got to see the hammer rising in the air and crashing down. You know, she might not have ever guessed that her husband would smash her head in in the middle of the night. And I think that's the fear that we all live in today as people living in a domestic uh, environment. What if? Maybe that's the biggest, deepest fear we have. Unless there's one, just one, that's bigger, deeper. Well, what about this? What if you were Dr. Harold Perelson and you didn't know that you were a killer in waiting? Maybe the fear is that the monster isn't just in the house, but it's within you. And I think that's the biggest fear. The Perelson house exists in a kind of limbo between then and now, as it always has. Only now it's in a legal limbo, too. Rudy Enriquez didn't have kids, as far as Jeff Mache knows, but that's not to say he didn't have heirs. And in all likelihood, the house will finally be sold at some point in the near future. On a Sunday earlier this month, there were signs that someone had been in the house recently and begun the long process of cleanup. The famous Christmas tree is gone from the living room, replaced by a rolling trash bin and a broom. Full disclosure, my wife was brave enough to jump the chain across the driveway and go up to the house for a look through the windows while I stayed in the car down on Glendower Place and kept an eye peeled for the neighbors. I would like that house to be restored to its former glory with a ballroom and fantastic bedrooms and beautiful bathrooms. The only problem is I don't know who would ever be able to live there having read the story of the doctor with the ball-peen hammer in the middle of the night. But I would like to see that day when the, when the doors open and I would be first in line to look round and I might even put an offer in on it. <laughs> but the reality is, it's most likely a teardown. The process of decay after 60 years neglect would be just too far advanced. The wreckers will come in and they'll rip the place down, level the ground, 
And somebody will put up a big new house in the current style for those things in Los Angeles, which is to say no style at all. And without the house to give it physical shape and weight, the story will finally pass wholly into the realm of urban legend. And then it'll be forgotten. And that'll be that. Unless. Unless the house and the story have an afterlife in that most Los Angeles of ways. Yes, yeah. Um, as soon as the story came out, um, a movie production company bought the rights to the article and they are going to try and make a movie, I guess, based on uh, the story of what happened in the house. Um, uh, Coalition Group have got uh, a writer called Joshua Malkin who wrote uh, a horror movie called Cabin Fever. Um, I don't watch scary movies, so I don't know much about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I guess it'll be a good, good thing. <laughs> 